At the age of 25, our gas today was £50,000 in consumer debt, and yet five years later, a self-made multi-millionaire. Today, his property business has a portfolio of 900 rental units and over 140 rental units under development, and a nine-figure training big company. His podcast is ranked within the top in the UK with over 700 episodes, including interviews with 15 billionaires and over 150 of the most successful people on the planet in their discipline, regularly downloaded in more than 200 different countries. Co-founder of the Progressive Group, including Progressive Property, Progressive Successors and the Entrepreneur's Business Academy, Chaos Creator and Playful Rebel, welcomes to Add a Zero, Rob Moore. Today's Add a Zero special guest. Thank you, Jay. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> Rob, welcomes to Add a Zero. Many thanks for joining us. I wonder if we can start with a brief sharing with regards to a little bit about your childhood that led you to subsequently being £25,000 in, uh, in debt at the age of 25. Um, well, my dad got me working in his pub about age six or seven, if I recall. I loved it and he'd get me um I'd restack the shelves from the night before in the pub and I'd go and do the cellar and um do all the beer kegs loved it I'd empty the fruit machines slot machines pull tables and count all the money and bag it all up and just wanted to be like my dad really and he'd take me around is buying his new pubs and bars and clubs and hotels and really looked up to him and then went to school got interested in girls got not interested in a career didn't know what I wanted to do went to university just really for the social aspect of it did a degree I've done nothing with and then came back from the degree not really sure what I was going to do um and my mum said, look, come and work in the pub for just a couple of months. Dad doesn't seem himself, doesn't seem very well. So I came and sort of worked in the pub for what ended up being three or four years. Okay. And not earning great money, built up a bit of debt through uni, a bit of debt through just not earning a massive amount of money or spending more than I earned actually, because... I didn't have much overhead because I lived in the pub, but I just spent more than I earned. And so built up a debt from university and, and the few years afterwards. Um, and so really it wasn't like I made one massive bad financial decision. It was a combination of just spending, spending a little bit more than you earn each week and sticking the odd thing on a credit card and carrying over some debt and then that can all build up and that got me to around december 2005 that was the peak of my debt rob i think what i've taken from this so far is you're a local lad like everybody else you grew up in a in a normal environment it wasn't that you got a a superstar to be able to well although your dad was your superstar it wasn't like it, you were born into a multi-million pound empire and it was all gifted to you on a plate you you were born into the same environment like each and every one of us and and subsequently you've done the same type of things at 25 that most of us have done with regards to a bit of educational debt and a little bit of overspending 
What happened at 25 that subsequently changed your thinking that by the time you were 31, you were a multi-millionaire? Um, so my dad had a nervous breakdown in his pub on December the 15th, 2005. It was pretty horrific for us. In front of a full pub of customers, he just lost lost it, sort of. Um, started shouting, screaming, squealing. His eyes went over out, rolled over around the back of his head, and it looked like he was almost being having an exorcism or something. It was not very nice. And when I got him out the front of the pub, and the police were called and came and beat him up, and it was a big fight between him and the police, and um, they stuck him in the back of a police van, and they sectioned him, and then he was diagnosed with. Back then, it was called manic depression. I think it's called bipolar now. Um, this was, yeah, nearly 16 years ago. So it was December the 15th, 2005. So, um, and it was a strange few weeks after that because I felt intense shame, humiliation, that I was partly responsible for it because I just felt like I'd been a bit of a drain on him. You know, he'd always worked really hard to put me through a good school. Even though I racked up debt, he paid for a fair bit of my university. And, yeah, I, I just, I was cocky, complacent, had a chip on my shoulder, uncoachable, um, lost, scared, with this bravado, this front. And the only really way I knew how to handle it was to go out with my mate, mates and hide from it, I suppose, and... Um, when everything happened with my dad, it just really brought it all home that I really had to do something. I didn't know what or how, but I knew that I, I had to take some kind of control and personal responsibility. So opportunities that were there that I never thought were there started showing themselves again. Like my gallery owner had been saying to me, you should go to these local property meetings and of course I'd be like well why would I want to do that that'd be full of yuppies and you know wankers <laughs> um, and I ended up going and I met my business partner Mark at the very first property networking meeting and he gave me three books to read and I read them within a week whereas I hadn't read a book for 10 years probably and every opportunity that came to me I was just hungry for it motivated by quite a lot of pain to be honest but then I suppose it had also, in a way, un, un, re-uncovered this desire to be an entrepreneur and to be successful and to be like my dad. So that also happened. And yeah, you know, I'm not saying my life is easy and I'm not saying that I've got it all sorted out, but I've never really looked back since then. And, you know, now it just seems to be, I seem to have a great, um, ability to make an impact because I've written 18 books because I've done nearly a thousand podcast episodes because I've got more than a million followers across my social media because I've got the UK's largest property training company because I've got 1200 rental tenants rental units in my property portfolio so um yeah that was really that that the journey through um and, and, and my dad, I suppose, as the catalyst as well as the inspiration. 
Rob, thanks for sharing something that's clearly quite emotive for you even now with regards to the, the journey that you've been through and the impact that your dad had and probably still has on you with regards to um, your thinking and your motivation. There, there were two things that I really that really resonated with me there with regards to you, you said that things start to present themselves to you that probably had already been there but you probably haven't seen before and yet the same things were coming again almost repeating themselves coming back to you and yet you were looking at it from a different perspective and subsequently saw something completely different yeah well i wrote my latest book called is called opportunity which actually i looked three days ago on the audible charts and it was number one and i i didn't know it was so that was a nice surprise um, normally the surprises I get are not the nice ones, so that was a nice surprise. And uh, you know, in the blog, book I explain that I believe sim there are an infinite number of simultaneous opportunities present in whatever form we might choose to believe, whether it's manifest, unmanifest, unified field, or superconscious, or, or or whatever. But you know, how could it be that I thought there were no opportunities and life was unfair and I was unlucky? And yet a, just a complete change of the way I looked at the world and all of a sudden those opportunities showed themselves to me. They were already there. I just didn't see them. You can't, you know, you have a filter, don't you? Your, your attitudes, your perceptions and your mindset filters what you see. And you can see anything as an upside or anything as a downside, anything as on the way or anything as in the way and anything as an opportunity or anything as, you know, an obstacle. So it was really my forced change in mindset, which started for many months, Jay, as pain and um, hurt. And, you know, I learned over the years to, I suppose, forgive myself for some of the things I thought that I'd done wrong I suppose change the motivation not to just be fueled by pain and shame um but yeah I wrote in my book opportunity that I believe that there are an infinite number of simultaneous opportunities that exist should you choose to find them and listen to them and put yourself into situations to receive them and then act upon them when they're there and see them as an opportunity rather than as something that you can't do that's too hard, etc. Rob, thank you. Um, I, I can't, I can't help but agree with you in in almost everything that you've said, word for word. Um, I, I'm intrigued uh, because you mentioned Mark gave you three books to read. I wonder if you can recall as to which books you read um, that he passed to you that was uh, that was the inspiration for the property stuff. Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad and i think it was who moved my cheese um yeah i think it was those three thanks for sharing because I'm, I'm sure that there are many people's reading list alongside the the 18 titles that you have uh, and growing library of books that you're writing for people in the business in the investment space um, interestingly enough rich dad poor dad is i i know that a side of the bible Rich Dad Poor Dad is the, the most thumbed book in my arsenal. I think I've perhaps read it 16 or 17 times. Because um, every time wow. I read it, I get something completely different from it because I'm in a different space and therefore I'm looking for a different aspect from what Robert Kiyosaki is teaching. And, and certainly 
that, that seems to have been the, the same for yourself when you read it. It was just the right text at the right time. Yeah, I definitely agree with you that you can read a book at a different time and get more from it. Um, and yeah, Think and Grow Rich was probably the seminal book for me, the the game changer, if you like. Rob. Just because I never, I didn't think you could think and grow rich. I didn't think you could control your mindset. I was very much a, a victim to how my brain worked on me rather than understanding it was a tool that I could maybe have some influence or control over. I just thought I was unlucky. I just thought that what I I thought was real or right or wrong, and I didn't realize it was a malleable, influenceable tool. Um, so to think about you know, the mastermind in your mind or the visualization or the manifestation or that there were traits of the greats that could be modeled and that you could get similar results and that it was merit-based and not predetermined. These were all concepts that were alien to me. And it seems weird to say that now, Jay, because I have a different perception and a different worldview, but you don't know what you don't know. Amen. Um, so yeah, life is very different now. Look, there are downsides to personal development and, you know, where I was, was like, I am me and you know, what I know is what I know and I'm good at this and I'm rubbish at that and I'm unlucky and you're lucky and, you know, to the world. But, um, the personal development downside is that it's never enough. There's always a new level. Your reward for a problem is a bigger one. And um, sometimes when you make a mistake, you feel that you should know better because of, you know, for example, you, you know, you said the Bible's the most read book. Well, you, I'm sure you follow the Ten Commandments. And I'm sure if you break one of those, you're probably going to feel quite disappointed in yourself. And, you know, so I, I know personal development. And so I know that I should be able to control my mind. I should be able to control my actions and decisions, but I'm a human being. And um, so anyone listening that is into personal development, I, I think probably actually the, the, the greatest thing I was taught in personal development was by John Demartini, which was that every situation, event or person in your life has an equally balanced set of upsides and downsides because I suppose I saw the world from a downside view before age 25. And then when I'd done loads of personal development, it was all positive and upside. And in reality, any event or situation, um, you know, has an upside or a downside upside of doing this with you, Jay, is we get to connect and we get to reach people and we get to, you know, hopefully inspire some people. And we, you know, we might both reach a new audience downside is we might be taking time away from our children or you know i'm usually um sort of retiring at this sort of time of night because i get up at 5 30. um every event has an upside and a downside and, and i believe that to be true and um that's probably the most balanced aspect of personal development i've learned thanks very much for sharing that really is quite <coughs> deep um 
it's interesting, isn't it? Because despite how clever we become and, and what we learn and the likes, we are still very much emotive human beings and we, and we tend to think with our heart and then justify with our head as opposed to calming that emotion down to determine, does this serve me well? Uh, and am I taking the right course of actions to be able to lead me towards where I want to achieve? Or in actual fact, am I just being emotive in the moment? Yeah, so... Um... Emotions, I believe, are um, our trigger feedback response to our environment. And what I mean by that is something happens through an event or a person or a situation. And we react to that unconsciously. And our emotions are the feedback that we get. And those emotions are important because they serve us in survival. We need the fear to keep us safe and we need the elation or the, you know, the, the, the happiness as a reward um, to move towards safety. Um, but emotions are just reactions to the environment. But what we do is we make them who we are instead of understanding they're not who we are, they're how we react. And, you know, our unconscious mind is very good at creating habitual responses. And what it also does as a protection mechanism is it creates habitual responses in the present from things that happened in the past. So we replay our past emotional responses in the present because um, our mind is trying to keep us safe and so cr creating familiar memories to recall to the present. But again, all of these emotions cloud the essence of who we are and they're out of context because, you know, if, if I upset you, it probably is not going to lead to death unless I do something really bad. <laughs> and knowing you read the Bible probably means I'm going to be quite safe. Um, whereas 10,000 years ago, that could have led to my death. Yep. So these emotions that we get that are triggers as, as feedback to the environment are out of context and recalled from past extreme situations and then presented to us in the moment. So to actually fully understand an emotion is very difficult because it's out of context from reality compared to where we were 10,000 years ago. And it's clouded by our, all of our past experiences. But they have to be strong in us to make us act. If emotions were easy to control, then they wouldn't keep us safe from extreme threats because we'd just be able to create logic over them and control them too well. So the challenge in modern society for us to live a balanced, productive, um, and I don't say happy, and there's a reason for that, but a balanced, productive life is to contextualize our emotions, i.e. 
what does this feedback actually mean? In what context is it? Is it really in the moment or is it the past? Yeah, for example, certain people I know are close to me that can talk to me in a certain way that will make me feel immediately patronized and demeaned like my headmaster used to talk to me. Okay. But that's not them. That's how I feel about how I used to be talked to when I was younger. So there's, a, there's a lot of processing to do when we experience an emotion. And you get better at this with practice. And, and I think personal development, for example, as a concept can help you with this, is what does this mean? What am I reacting to? What's present and what's real? And what do I need to do in response to this? And usually it is regulating an emotion. You're high, you bring yourself back into center. You're down and low, you bring yourself back up into center. Now, if an extreme, if an emotion is extreme, it's usually one-sided. Depression doesn't see upside. Elation doesn't see downside. So the quickest, probably the, the best way to regulate your emotions is to bring yourself back into balance. I remember my, my one of my mentors, John Martini, saying, I gave up being um, happy years ago because it made me too damn depressed. <laughs> and what he meant by that was, if, you're, if you have a, a very high emotions, essentially volatile, highs and lows, highs and lows, you create this mania, you create this extremism, um, and it's very exhausting, um, and it's, it's out of balance. So there are balanced transcendent emotions, gratitude, for example, is, is one of them, I believe. Um, but I believe you can manage and master your emotions, you can master your life. If you don't react to the trigger, but you're able to take that breath, take that moment, be pensive, be thoughtful, evaluate, look at upsides and downsides, self-regulate, then all these bad emotional decisions and addictions and mistakes and reactions that we make will make less of them. Um, I do believe I've got a lot better at that in my life, Jay, as I've worked on it, but I'm a human being and I am flawed and imperfect and therefore I'm still going to get triggered, especially if things challenge my highest values. So that's a work in progress, but it's a fun and exciting one. And entrepreneurs like I am often are not very good at giving ourselves credit. We're often either thinking we should do more or just looking to the next level. But one thing I try and give myself credit for, and I would recommend this to everyone listening is, if you manage your emotions well, give yourself credit for it. You know, every day you don't smack your kid in the face <laughs> because your kids are driving you to distraction. You deserve a medal of honor. Every day you have a complaint or a critic and you deal with it in a balanced or at least a controlled way. Because by the way, control could mean controlled retaliation or it could mean standing up for yourself. It doesn't necessarily mean, you know, just walking away from everything or, bend, or bending over. But every time you do that, try and give yourself a bit of a pat on the back and go, you know, I handled that well. Because life's going to throw loads of challenges at us. Amen. Amen, does it ever. Uh, Rob, that was, a, that was a, a perfect link, if I may, to, uh, to your book, Money, um, for which was quite pivotal in the relationship that I had 
one in money in my business, but also in my personal life and understanding the environment and the background and the heritage that I'd inherited to my relationship with money didn't necessarily come from me per se, but came from my parents. Um, in the book, in, in, in chapter five, you talk about uh, money beliefs and money emotions um, and our emotions to money and how that then portrays it and what we do with it. Perhaps you've got a couple of minutes just to, be able to expand on that for people. Yeah, well, what we believe about money isn't real because what we believe about everything and anything isn't real is our filtered perception. So knowing that gives you some choices. What do I choose to believe then? If what I believe isn't real, it's my own individual perception, is what I believe serving or hindering me and using money as the example you know and and as a man who's read the bible many times you'll know that there are some fairly controversial statements around money such as um, more chance of going through the eye of a needle uh, as, as a rich man going to heaven or worse to those effects or the love of money being the root of all evil so if you've been raised with those kind of beliefs distilled into you in some faiths, you know, money lending is illegal, you know, and it's seen as immoral, for example. Um, or, you know, your parents say money doesn't grow on trees. And, you know, what do you think? I am made of money. And so you have a scarce impression bestowed upon you by your faith or by your parents or by your environment. If you were raised in a developing world or if you were raised in, in relative poverty, because there's a lot of poverty in the UK, not just um, in the developing world. And your environment and your media and your parents and your faith and all of these things, they form your beliefs. But they are not real. They are your beliefs. So what I've decided to do when I changed my perception of life because of my dad's breakdown is when I was reading Think and Grow Rich and then that opened the door to another three books, which opened the door to another nine, which opened the door to another 27, which opened the door, door to another 81. Um, I decided to really study money and learn the upsides of it and the benefits of it and what it could give me and to let go of my beliefs that all millionaires were yuppies or drug dealers or greedy. Um, and in that pursuit of probably now reading or listening to maybe more than 3000 books and in my research project for my own book money i read or listened to every single book i could find on the internet on the subject as well as my own getting out of debt and becoming a millionaire age 30 odd and a decamillionaire age 35 i realized you can pretty much form whatever belief you want now linking back to one of my beliefs jay and I, and I do th do believe this to be true. If every situation has an equally balanced set of upsides and downsides, then it, so it has to be with money. So let's people let's say that people say, "Ah, oh, the ri rich people, you know, they evade tax. We need to tax the rich more." But you could look at it from the other side and say, "Well, rich people employ loads of people. They pay business rates. They pay income tax. They generate loads of that." They generate loads of national insurance, you know, so you could see the upside and the downsides. 
uh, you know, rich people, they don't need that amount of money. But then you can say, well, but rich people have produced more products and services than poor people have, and that's their reward. You could say our oh, rich people are, are greedy, narcissists, but then um, many of them are giving philanthropists. So I realized I could actually find proof of either extreme depending on where I looked. But because I wanted to be wealthy, because who doesn't? And the only reason people won't admit it is because they're scared of being judged. But imagine you're the only person li alive on this planet, but money was still useful. Would you have a lot or not? Of course you would. If, you, if there was no fear of judgment or fear that you'd taken off of someone else or you'd screwed someone over, of course you'd want to be rich. Who doesn't want a nicer car and a nicer house and a nicer holiday and, you know, those kind of things. So the beliefs we hold around money that, you know, in order to be rich, you need, needed to have taken off someone. Well, the polar opposite of that is you needed to create for someone to generate wealth. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the belief that money doesn't make you happy. Well, actually, you could argue that money does increase your freedom and the ability to buy, do and have and be things that do increase your happiness. And in that chapter you're talking about, I lined up the negative and positive beliefs, just lined them all up, like 25 or 30 of them. And, and, and a lot of people have talked about that chapter as quite eye-opening because they held some of those negative or one-sided one is a better word. Because negative or positive is a perception, isn't it? Depending on your reality, but one-sided beliefs. And... So, you know, the more money I've made, the more I've given to charity, the more I've created products and services that have been useful to others, the more time I've got, therefore I'm able to do podcasts like this and waive my very expensive keynote fee. The more money I make, the more expensive a keynote fee I can have, etc. Um, and so I recommend if anyone else is honest with them when, themselves when they look in the mirror and go, I'd actually like to be wealthy. I don't want to be... You see, a lot of people sabotage their own wealth because they don't want to be perceived as the perception of wealthy people that they have. So if you have a poor perception of salespeople and wealthy people, you don't want to become that person, so you self-sabotage it, and you don't even know you're doing it. But you can be wealthy and not be that person. You can be you. So, yeah, they're my thoughts on that. Rob, thank you so much for sharing. I've, I've, got, to, I've got to be honest with you. Um, I was... I was a strange. I chose to become estranged from my parents from as as young as I could physically do so. I left home at sixteen, um, and was very quick to be able to shy away from the relationship that I was expected to have with my parents and their expectations of me. Um, and for a long, long time throughout my armed forces career and, and, and time within the army, I was very conscious of the fact that whilst I was detached from them physically. I still had the, they still had this physical, almost mental hold on who I was and my perceptions, particularly around money and wealth. Um, and ironically, it took reading that chapter um, and then subsequently understanding a little bit more about liquidity leverage um, and accepting the fact that all the money in the world is yours and available to you. Um, it's not just what's written on your bank balance. It's about the relationships you have with people who have access to all the money in the world. Um, completely changed my attitudes towards what money is 
um, what you're supposed to do with it, how you're supposed to be able to make use of it, and understand that it's just another energy source, that it has to flow both for and to, uh, to and fro, in order for it to be able to gain momentum and do the best world in the world. Yeah, that's really interesting about identities that you have to shift and perceptions of, of others. So you're not born to please your parents. None of us are born to please anyone or to be subservient to anyone. I can't say that I have the the answer to why we're born but what i can say with a degree of volition is one of our purposes of life is to help humanity evolve you know we are our species is in, inherently coded to survive and to procreate. So I think I can say quite accurately that one of our purposes of living is to evolve through a, a relatively challenging and dangerous environment. And part of that we're creating ourselves, let's be honest. So if that's the case, we're not born to please anyone, we're born to grow. And growth happens as a result of challenge. Um, I know that there's biological, uh, other biological things that go on, but, you know, you become more resilient when you transcend and overcome a challenge. So I think knowing that your purpose isn't to please your parents or your customers or your employers or your followers, but to be the most self-actualized or useful version of yourself to humanity as a whole changes the game about the hold that people have over you. Because people have hold over you, but they don't even know it. And it's actually not them that have hold over you, it's your perception of them in your own mind. So it's a, a fiction you create that becomes a prison. And I know a lot of people, again, they said they had a revelation out of that chapter, Jay, whose parents have been dead 20 years and they still have a certain degree of that hold. So having the courage to be disliked, disowned and rejected and ridiculed in the pursuit of self-actualization, I think is freedom. Amen. Um, and I think is the way for you to um, get the most out of life. And in many ways, I'm quite lucky. There's not one individual in my mind that I've created that holds me back. But there has been my collective, what people think about me. And often people is just unmanifest fictional people like if i put a post out on social media what do they think or well, who's they i don't know they and they don't know me but 
the greatest gift we can all give to humanity and our own freedom is to have the courage to be disliked in the pursuit and exchange of the most useful version of yourself, which is going to piss people off and it's going to challenge people because we all have a unique set of values and a unique reason for being here. Before we close, Rob, because I'm exceptionally grateful for, for your time and your contributions today, it's been one of the most insightful and deep interviews I've done in my podcast history so far. And I've got so much from today. Um, one, being able to talk to the author of the book that changed my life and mm -hmm. my, my attitudes to money, but but also just just following you for, for, for years now as the disruptive entrepreneur and being able to acknowledge that you don't have to fit in it's not about fitting in, it's about being able to be yourself and being in your own skin. I wonder if I can just share one quick thought with you about the, the, the story I now tell myself about purpose and how money fits in. Um, and it almost relates back to the old Tom and Jerry cartoons. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with Tom and Jerry. Um, I associate us as humans um, predominantly with being the fat cat that's chasing the mouse all the time and and jerry the mouse represents money there are so many people out there that are in this constant pursuit of money that are constantly on the chase i just need some more money i just need this i just need that i just need the other i'll do whatever it takes to be able to to catch jerry and as we know from the cartoons jerry runs rings round tom he has a laugh and a joke with him he plays goals and jokes and 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 Tom just ends up getting knackered and worn out and fed up and pissed off with the whole thing that eventually just gives up. And as soon as he gives up and Jerry's not being chased, Jerry gets bored and comes and sits at the side of him and shares the cheese. And, and my analogy to all of that, and, and, and hopefully it's one that you might associate or at least assimilate with, is whilever we're chasing money, money continues to enjoy the game chase. And the moment we stop chasing money and start to understand that the best use of our time is to chase impact, then in actual fact, money gets bored of not being chased and comes to be able to Im impact our impact on others in the world. Yeah, that's fascinating. I'd never heard of that analogy expressed in that way. Um, I think that money is a result of your usefulness in society but manifested in a transaction. So you have to be able to accept money to have money. And a lot of people don't accept money very easily. You have to have something useful that you've created that other people will transact with you to create money. And then you have to manage it well to keep it. So in my book, Money, I came up with a formula for wealth, which I've never seen unproven by anyone. Um, and I suppose in some ways I could say this is some of my best work to come up with an actual formula for something as complicated as, as money. And that is that wealth equals value plus fair exchange times leverage. So wealth equals value. So value is how useful are you to society? If you're not useful, they're not going to want anything off you. 
And if they don't want anything off you, you can't charge for nothing. So you have to be valuable. And a lot of people are going, oh, well, I just want money or I just want things to be easier or why won't my boss give me a pay rise? And they're on the opposite end of the spectrum of expecting to get value from others or be given money without putting value out first. But there's this fair exchange environment part in the middle, Jay, which I think a lot of people miss. And the fair exchange is, if you have a product and I'm your customer, for me to receive fair exchange, I have to give money to you and receive equal or more value. So if I get 10 pounds or more perceived value to me from something that you're charging a tenner for, I feel that's fair. But if you make a loss of a pound, you think it's unfair. So that's not for exchange. Let's say you up that to 15 pounds. I pay 15 pounds, but it's only worth 11. I think I've been ripped off. I think that's unfair. So fair exchange is where you make fair profit and I get fair value in exchange. And there's a fair exchange sweet spot in virtually any transaction. You've got to find it. You have a fair profits margin that's sustainable and scalable. They get, you know, fair and useful value. So you create value, you have a fair exchange in transactional environment, and then you have leverage, which is scale. Because, you know, if you have one transaction, you're not going to be wealthy. If you have a million transactions, you're going to be wealthy. So that would be my formula for wealth. Rob, thank you so much. Before we close, you're, you're quoted uh, regularly as saying, if you don't risk anything, you risk everything. Um, as, a, as a final note for today's podcast, and I, I can't tell you how grateful I am for what you've shared with us today. It's been phenomenal. What would you advise to someone who's considering investing in some form of either coach or mentorship or some form of help and supports to be able to accelerate them in the business, but but still got this this perception with regards to it being a cost as opposed to an investment. What what advice would you give to someone that's on the on on the uh, on the, uh, the the fence, as it were, and still determining as to whether it's the right thing for them or not? Well, I suppose it depends on how you define a return define a return on investment. Um. And. what price you're willing to pay. So if you're not willing to pay money to invest in yourself as an investment, there's another price to pay. And that is non-education, non-resilience, having to find all the answers yourself instead of finding them in someone else, unleverage instead of leverage. So there's always a price to pay, Jay, for every decision that you make. So you want to be clear on what's the price you're prepared to pay. And for me, investing money is usually the cheapest price to pay. Because I don't want to be someone who's got to figure out all the answers myself. I don't want to be someone who feels lost and, and lonely and can't transcend my problems. I don't want to be someone who is, is just stuck at my level. I want to be someone who stands on the shoulder of gi shoulders of giants and... Um, you know, owns the traits of the greats. So investing yourself is your best investment. So invest in yourself wisely because you pay yourself the best return. And um, if Warren Buffett believes that 
self-investment is the best investment when he became a billionaire investing in the stock market, then that's good enough for me. Rob, I can't tell you how grateful I am for your time today. I, I, I recall favourably um, your very good friend, Nick James, when I first got to meet Nick um, at the very first Expert Empires uh, all those many years ago. Um, and one of the almost passing comments um, he said as he was due to leave stage was simply, the most expensive advice that you ever take is that which you sought for free. Um, um, because ironically, it, when when you get free advice, it's not just free advice. It's usually because there's a cost down the line um, of failings to be able to invest in self to understand as to where do you get the uh, where, where do you get the, the greatest knowledge from. And I can't tell you how grateful I am today because um, alongside of our podcast listeners, I have got so much from being able to listen from the insight that is the one and only, the disruptive entrepreneur of the UK and the world, Mr. Rob Moore. Sincerest of thanks for your time and your contribution today, sir. Thank you, Jay. Thanks, everyone. It's been a pleasure. That's all for this episode. As always, we really thank you for listening and welcome your comments, thoughts, and suggestions. So please do drop us a line by emailing podcast at mytruenorth.biz. And don't forget, if you haven't already done so, hit the subscribe button on whichever platform you're listening to this through. And tell your colleagues and business network all about who we are. You've been listening to the Add a Zero podcast presented by Jay Allen. Brought to you in association with My True North, the UK's leading ethical coaching company. 